and welcome to the special episode of the Auckland Writers Festival Winter Series. My name is Tina Makareti and I programme the Onayane series for the cancelled 2020 festival. The series focused on what is vibrant and exciting in Māori and Indigenous creative writing in Aotearoa today, so this special episode is a little taste of some of that programme. A big thanks to our very generous venue and technical partner Auckland Live and Copyright Licensing New Zealand for their support in making this series possible. I'm talking to three of our original Onayane guests today, focusing on their most recent work, which they will also read from briefly. We'd love to have your questions throughout using the chat functions on Facebook and YouTube, and please feel free to share this episode via social media. The writer's works are available for sale by clicking the buy the book link in the description. A reminder that with a live stream event, there is a risk of spammers, so please do not click on any links in the comments unless they are supplied by the Auckland Writers' Festival. And the sessions are free to view, so ignore any requests for credit card details. So I'd like to welcome our three writers in the order in which they'll appear. First, we're going to be discussing Renee's novel, The Wild Card. No mai, haramai, Renee. Um, how's it in Ōtaki this morning? It's a bit grey. It's a wee bit grey, but it's okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. Good. And secondly, we'll be meeting Joshua Whitehead to discuss his novel, Johnny Appleseed, all the way from Calgary, Tanze Joshua. Um, and and you're in lockdown still, I guess. Yeah, Tanze at the mark. Hi, my friends. I still am um, in the Western Canada prairies where it's, it was raining earlier and now it's pure sun. So you take it as you roll. <laughs> oh, kia ora. thank you for joining us. Um, and finally, we'll be treated to some music and poetry from Ruby May Hinepunui Soli's album Pōneke. Kia ora, Ruby. Kete pihiakwe. Oh, kete mawiwi o. Um, ingari, I'm looking forward to today very much. Nevertheless, kia ora. So, uh, thanks so much, all of you, for coming to talk to us. Um, I'll talk to Renee now, and we'll look forward to speaking to you, Joshua and Ruby, after that. Um, so playwright, novelist, poet, memoirist and blogger Renee, who is Ngāti Kahununu, has documented New Zealand's social history and work that includes Wednesday to Come, Setting the Table and the memoir These Two Hands. Her most recent book, The Wild Card, is her first crime novel and it has just been longlisted for a Ngāio Marsh Award for Best Crime Novel. Congratulations, Renee. Among her many awards, Renee is a recipient of an Officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit for Services to Literature and Drama, a Creative New Zealand Te Waka Toy Award, and a Sir Kingi Ihaka Award. In 2018, Renee received the prestigious New Zealand Prime Minister's Award for Literary Achievement in Fiction. Still writing prolifically in her 90s, Renee is an inspiration to us all. Kia ora, fire. Kia ora. Uh, kia ora. The Wild Card is about a character called Ruby Palmer, who, has, who was left in a kite at the back door of the Porohiwi home for children when she was a baby, and then at seven years old discovered that Betty, the person who stopped bad stuff happening to Ruby at the home, has drowned. A New Zealand Books review says, 
The treatment of children put into state care and abused in the institutions that were meant to care for them is a deep part of the story. So too, though, is the fight for justice, as is the institutional racism that still pervades society today. So this is a crime genre novel, which is a new form for you, Renee, but there is also a personal story at the heart of the wild card. And I was wondering if, in that case, was writing a crime novel quite different from your other writing or, or more like your memoir than we might guess? Um, well, it came about by accident because I was teaching um, a group, the first crime novel uh, workshop I'd ever um, done, and I'd made up the the 10 um, sessions over the January and we met in February and I I thought, I, wonder, I don't, I'm not going to be able to know if the course really works or not. So I decided at that moment that I would do the course along with the students. So I wrote 10 pages a week, which is the deal. They don't come on the course if they don't do that. And um, so at the end of the course, I had 100 pages and I thought, well, you know, I'm a child of the 30s, waste not, want not, so I'll, I'll use it. And I've read um, thousands and thousands and thousands of crime novels, and I'm interested in the history of, of crime novels and how people as readers, some of us anyway, like to be scared or mystified or whatever. And, um, and so I wrote it, and I have also been... Um, a follower of the inquiry into sexual abuse in state care, and and was just dis and disappointed with the progress of that. And I thought of the Lake Alice inquiry as well, which is still uh, dragging on years and years later. And so I thought it was time to kind of write a story about that and show lives that had been um, perhaps. Perhaps Ruby escapes the worst of that, but she doesn't escape the memories and, of course, Betty's death. And I wanted to clothe all that in a style that um, people would read. So I, I chose a kind of style that is a light, a light sort of funny, bit cynical, lots of swearing, that sort of thing. And... Um, yeah, and so that's how I did it. I'm not a really um, brave um, person at, in reading, I mean. I don't like old women being killed for obvious reasons, all that sort of thing. And But I knew that you were supposed to have uh, the splinter of ice in your heart if you wrote a crime novel. So I thought, well, I better have the, the crime is an historical one, um, that the book centres around, but I thought maybe I should have one in the present day. So I killed off um, one of the characters and I just didn't, I didn't really like it. I didn't like doing it. I liked the character. So I just, on the Monday, I worried about it all weekend and on the Monday I just rolled back the stone and, <laughs> and there he was alive again. And, and so and that's, that's why I call the book um, cosy noir because it's really a dark, has a dark streak, but it's quite a cosy sort of read. I love that cosy noir because I'm 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 a wimp when it comes to um, crime as well. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, fantastic to encounter that um, and kind of be accessing crime through this 
the way that you're doing it. And so um, is, is writing at the stage in your life um, different with so much experience? Is it still thrilling? Oh, yes, and it's still hard and you still make mistakes and you go over things. You, you write some pages 150 times. It's exactly the same. And I seem to, I don't know what happened to getting old and sitting in the sun and reading a book. I don't, it hasn't, I haven't reached it yet. I'm, I seem to be quite busy. And, um, yeah, it's, it's being nearly 91 doesn't really, I mean, I sort of never expected to live a long time anyway. So it's, it's a sort of a surprise. And, and I'm just lucky that my brain has um, lasted. And, and sort of gets better in a way. Brilliant. Well, we we can all hope for that, for um, the story to keep being interesting and our brains getting better. Um, I, I'm interested in something you said, and it's actually all the way back in 1995, but it was a really interesting quote to me because I think um, I still hear young Māori saying it today, and you said, um, and sorry to quote you, you back to yourself, but I'll always be an outsider in both worlds, Sometimes I feel alienated from the European world and sometimes from the Māori world because I sometimes feel inadequate in both of them. And um, I had two thoughts about this. One, that maybe this is how writers are made, this feeling of alienation and inadequacy is such a, a kind of a place that a lot of us come from. But also I have often think a lot about how we help people see such things, um, not as inadequacy but as a gift. And I was wondering if your perspective had changed at all, whether you see that as as a strength of your own writing at this point? I, I think, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's changed. I think um, I always see myself standing standing on bridge, one foot on one side, one foot on the other, and um, I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable that it's not, it's not um, heartbreaking. At one stage of my life, I, I was very um, conscious of my feelings. But you see, the thing is, I don't feel at home all that well in the Pākehā world either. I don't feel at home in the literary world for that matter. And mm. um, and I don't know where, how... I, saw, I was talking to a young woman about this. She wanted me to talk about dramaturging and, and I was talking about um, understanding the language of it, which I didn't. Um, and I think... Part of my um, feeling not not at home with a lot of areas is simply that I just don't speak that language. I I think it's because I went out to work so young and I didn't go to high school. So I missed that very important area where there's a lot of growth and friendships and, you know, little links here and there. And I just didn't have that. And... I just went straight to work, and so my contemporaries at work were older women who were lovely to me. They just were great. and um, But I missed out on this other area that everyone else like you and Ruby and um, Josh has, have probably had. And so there's a kind of uh, ease that you probably have that I've had to learn, and perhaps not very well, um, because sometimes I think, oh, I just can't be bothered. So, um, yeah, like, it's a bit late now anyway, isn't it? <laughs> um, oh, Kia ora I think um, 
I think that's actually something that a lot of people could identify with, actually, even now, um, for sure. Um, would you Would you like to read to us from the wild card? Okay. okay. This is Pioracoto. Uh, this is from the first chapter, a, sh a short piece, from the first chapter of the wild card. She moved swiftly but carefully. The driveway was rough, breaks in the tar seal, lots of little bits of shingle, traps for an unwary foot. The ragged, untidy mess of manuka, koromiko, harakeke, and a thousand weeds made awkward ghostly shapes in the dim light. She could smell mint. Must be wild mint in the paddock over the stream. Mint loved water. Even the promise of it was enough to make it send out its perfume. Only a foolish gardener would plant mint in the garden. Mint is a great coloniser, brought here by other great colonisers. The last time she'd been on this driveway, she was seven, and so terrified she'd wet her pants as she ran. Now, 30 years later, she was more concerned about getting in and out without being seen. Where would be the easiest place to break in? Window or door? The door would be better. The long sash windows were notoriously easy to jiggle, but you ran the risk of breaking the glass. Although if the building was going to be pulled down anyway, would that really matter? She guessed the law wouldn't see it that way. Anyway, she'd be in and out reasonably quickly, whichever way she chose. She stopped by the path over the large culvert, ignored the stream, glaring palely through the gloom, stared at the back of the house. Well, this wasn't too bad. No ghosts of Matron or the Balaclava man. No drowned Betty lying on the path. Why had she built up such a fear of the place? It was nothing but a sad old house that had outlived its time. It wasn't responsible for what human beings had done in its walls. She took hold of the window frame and shook it. The house grumbled in protest. The window was secured by little levers each side, not really burglar-proof. If she slid her knife up the side where age had walked the wood, it wouldn't be too difficult. She leaned on the door and the house moaned like a ghost was walking the old passageway. Shivers of possibility trembled in the air. She turned and stared at the shed. The door hung open, so she pushed it in. A mess of cans and bottles, some Kentucky fried packets, Big Mac burger bags, even a used condom. Yucko, must have been really drunk or really desperate. She started down the other side. Her arm caught the end of a wet branch and water splashed on her jeans. Cold needle tips on warm skin. The lower she went, the more she became aware of the change in light. It hadn't exactly been well lit further up, but down here it was really dark. The clinging moisture embraced her in its damp grey arms, made her want to be home, warm and alone, sipping a glass of red, listening to one of those old songs that Kate had loved. Sam Cook, she thought, a change is going to come. Change had already come, and she hated it. One of the bushes moved. She stopped. Breathe quickly, heart beating like a snare drum tattoo. An illusion caused by the wind? Hardly. This was a breeze by Porohiwi standards. First rule, 
don't muck around. She swerved away, and now it was different. The shadow moved too. She was three quarters of the way down, too late to go back. What to do? Take over? Take off? Take them on? The old mantra. Not much choice here. She turned, took up the stance. The shadow moved faster now, not worried about noise as it crashed through the bushes. He came out of the dark, a running black ghost. Kia ora. Kia ora, Renee. Um, And we have just one audience question that we might be able to finish with. and that is about being, um, does being lesbian add to that feeling of being marginalised that you were talking about? Um, no, and actually it doesn't. But Brilliant. like I, I, I don't care. So it, um, <laughs> I, 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 I was lucky, like I was 50 when I came out. So it, like, that's a really good age to, um, and be, so you can say, you know, whatever you like really and of course I did say whatever I liked and um yeah I think I had the confidence and and thinking oh well you know nothing else can bad can happen I've found myself and this is what it is and so I I just started writing and um yeah no I think it's added it's added a richness to my life that I'll always always be very grateful for Mm. Oh, kia ora. Ngā mihi, Renee. That's um, really lovely to hear. And thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Um, we'd love to talk to you at the end and after I speak to Joshua and Ruby. So if you could stay with us. Um, and of course, um, for those audience members to remember, you can send through your questions on um, on YouTube and, oh, sorry, on Facebook. So our next guest is Joshua Whitehead. Um, Joshua Whitehead is a two-spirit OG Nihio member of the Pegwas First Nation. He is currently a PhD candidate, lecturer and Killam scholar at the University of Calgary, where he studies Indigenous literatures and cultures with a focus on gender and sexuality. He is the author of the futuristic cyberpunk poetry collection, Full Metal Indigiqueer. He is also the author of Johnny Appleseed, Our Focus for Today, which had, which was longlisted and shortlisted for several literary awards and won the Lambda Literary Award for Gay Fiction and the Georges Bounet Award for Fiction. And Johnny Appleseed, the protagonist, is a two-spirit indigiqueer who le- leaves Winnipeg, Manitoba to attend his stepfather's funeral on a reserve. In a review, Alicia Elliott described it thus... <clears throat> Every so often, a book comes along that feels like a milestone, with revolution nestled beneath every sentence, every word. She also says, perhaps the most refreshing part of this book is the frankness with which Whitehead writes about sex, particularly queer sex. So just a warning about content in case you're watching with children. Um, Tanzir Joshua. (laughs) Thanks for having me. being here. When I was in Toronto a couple of years ago, um, unfortunately, I did not cross your path because we were there at different times, but there was a real buzz around you and Johnny Appleseed. Um, But however, I suspect many New Zealanders haven't encountered your work before. 
Johnny Appleseed is both raw and lyrical and it's confronting and beautiful. Uh, through the language and rhythms of your writing, I felt immersed in the particular sounds of your homelands, your people, and a particular way of being in the world. So I wonder, as an introduction to the book, whether you might talk about some of the different influences on your work and your voice as a writer. Yeah, Johnny Appleseed um, is a character I've had for kind of in me or with me for the latter part of like over a decade. Um, so he started as this kind of Bildungsroman that I wanted to write when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and I was very obsessed with the beatniks at the time, um, On the Road um, and Ginsburg kind of being the big ones. Um, but I was really interested in kind of discovering what it'd be like for an Indigenous youth and a queer Indigenous youth to be kind of living this beatnik lifestyle. Um, so he's been with me for a while. He was more of a tertiary character. Um, and then I wrote Full Metal and Digiqueer. And we had these kind of sensual beach poems, which didn't quite fit with the larger, maybe cyborg elements of the, the novel or the book itself. So we cut these beach scenes, but I loved them so much. They were really evocative. Um, they were from several beaches in Manitoba. Uh, and then lo and behold, Johnny Appleseed, AKA the Glitter Princess, I call him, just kind of sashayed into my mind and was like, this is my time, write me in. So I did, uh, and he started as a short story and then became a novella. And then as he is a little bit of a diva, it was like, write me into a full novel. Um, so that's how Johnny kind of came into being. But he's very much influenced, I would say, by folks such as like James Baldwin, um, and then there was a Canadian writer, Raziel Reed, who won a governor general for a book called When Everything Feels Like the Movies, which was also published by my same publisher, uh, Arsenal Pulp. Um, and it was kind of the first time I thought, okay, it's really interesting to maybe push the boundaries of what we consider um, innocence, I guess I would say, in writing about and for and with youth. Um, so Johnny Appleseed came into being, one, because of my fascination with him as a character too, because of what was kind of happening perhaps in what we call the Canadian literary scene. And three, maybe from a blind spot, I would say uh, in thinking about healthy and respectful and powerful representations of gender and sex and sexuality written by and for um, indigenous two-spirit queer trans folks. Uh, so often it's written from a vantage point of an outsider, primarily um, a non-Indigenous, primarily white um, cis author who kind of writes about these in ways that are just misconstrued, tangled, not well-researched. So I kind of just said, I have this character. He's full of glitter. He likes to talk. He's very sexy. Uh, and I think it's time to kind of bring him to the stage. So it was kind of a mismatch of uh, history, my own personal history, my research interests and my PhD, and then what was kind of shaping up in the Canadian literature scene. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, you actually already asked, answered one of my questions, which was about that kind of exchange between Johnny and you, which seems to be quite visceral um, <laughs> as you're reading and... <laughs> The glitter princess. Um, um, so, and there's also um, something of, I guess, um, the, the indigenous places that you live and, and place is really strong there. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? Or you know, the kind of way, you know, how people, I guess, because I'm reading as a New Zealander, how people talk in Canada, which is familiar to me, but was very comforting, even as an outsider. Definitely. So I would say like Johnny Appleseed, like is primarily a 
a rumination on maybe two or three topics, but the biggest one I think is home um, and thinking about like what home means for um, an OG Cree child or Creeness or Prairie indigeneity um, coming from the history of residential schools and the precarity of what it means to have a home or to like have access to home. Um, through the flashing forward to things such as the 60s scoop and child and family services kind of enacting a very similar type of assimilation project. Um, so I really want, yeah, I wanted to kind of imbue, like I think home for me within the novel of Johnny Appleseed, so Peg was First Nation, um, Winnipeg, Manitoba, and even his little apartment that he lives in, they almost for me become like primary characters themselves and the, the beaches too. Um, and I think maybe that's a, something I learned from Toni Morrison, I would say, in Beloved, where she just kind of animates this like haunted house in such a way that it becomes a kind of dominant character. And I, I'm a huge Morrison fan, but that was one that's always stuck with me. So, yeah, when I was writing about Johnny Appleseed, I wanted to be true to perhaps I didn't want it to be, quote unquote, like trauma porn or poverty porn. Um, and I didn't want it to rely too much on intergenerational trauma, although that's very much there or residential schools. What I wanted to do was perhaps show um, what perhaps a non-Indigenous person might see the reservation as a wasteland, uh, which in ways it can be. Um, a lot of my family do live in somewhat decrepit homes, which are subjected to flooding every year from the rivers, primarily the red. Um, but I wanted to kind of be truthful to what what Pegwa's First Nation and what Manit Manitoba in general look like in that they are harsh. We get plus 40 in the summer, we get minus 50 in the winter. Um, it's a very yeah harsh landscape to be there in the prairies, um, but to also empower that. So one, it's difficult, two, there's really kind of genocidal histories, but three, there's also this uh, untouchable and really kind of humble beauty that I wanted to also show. Um, so for example, just there's like one little scene where there's this horse that's kind of surrounded by the floods, but he's still kind of thriving and Johnny ruminates, oh, he's still so well fed in a place that's meant for death. And I think that was kind of like the, the crux that I wanted to show with what I think of as home in the novel. Mm-hmm. It's it's really moving um, the way you're able to do all those things, and I might even have to listen back to this <laughs> just to go through those those references again. Your acknowledgement section is also an incredibly powerful piece of writing, and actually, when I got to that part, it felt like it kind of decoded some of the stuff that was going on because the the novel itself is is such a kind of powerful punch in many ways. Um, you say Johnny has taught me a lot of things, but there are two that I want to share with you. One, a good story is always a healing ceremony. We recuperate, remember, and rejuvenate those we storytell into the world. I just love that word, storytell. And two, if we animate our pain, it becomes something we can make love to. Johnny really walks this fine edge between love and pain. Um, and I, I guess I was wondering if it's difficult to be as unflinching as you seem to be about both of those things. Very much. So Johnny is like first and foremost a novel, um, but it is very much, I think of like maybe as BIPOC or Black Indigenous or folks of color or queer writers or women or disabled writers or any intersection thereof, um, those who are in the primary sources of power, when we storytell or we write, we're always undoubtedly like linked to the story itself. So like, yes, like this is a novel, but, and Johnny is a fictional character, but there are ways in which 
almost like my own character, Johnny, has kind of helped me heal and remember and rejuvenate as well. It's almost like bloodletting, I would say, or that I'm attached to the novel or the story with an like umbilical cord. So there are very much non-fictional elements of my life within Johnny. I'll leave those for you to perhaps ponder. Um, but I think <laughs> as a storyteller, um, it's ethical to be, or sorry, it's uh, our responsibility to be ethical to our characters as well, to listen to what they want to say, even if it's perhaps damning for one's own self or goes against their own code of ethics. So I think my job as a storyteller, or what we might say in Nehiawi when in Otachimo, um, is to listen fiercely to character, to myself, to the communities, um, and then also to not think of myself as writing singularly or uh, as writing in a vacuum. So like the acknowledgements page is basically me having to kind of give back to every single person who has paved the way for this book to even be in the world. Um, so perhaps I would say, sometimes I think literature is also spelled as accountability and it's always going to be for me embroiled within the community itself. I don't write singularly. It's always kind of a um, communal reciprocal thing. Oh, kia ora for that. That's just, um, yeah, fantastic thing to okay. hear. Um, would you um, read to us now, please? I would love to. It's been a while since I've got to read my little glitter princess. <laughs> um, so I put a call on Instagram, and this is what people wanted to hear, this chapter. So... Uh, it's a bit midway through the novel. I told Tias about that night a few weeks afterwards. He came over while my mom was at bingo and my cookum or grandmother was in Winnipeg for the weekend. My body was shaking involuntarily as I recalled the story for him. I had to sit down and he took me to my room, which was less an Ikea showroom and more a hand-me-down mattress without a box spring on the floor and a hamper for a dresser. My saving grace was my, my box TV and our pirated satellite, though. He brought me a cold cloth and he laid it on my forehead and told me everything was going to be okay. I asked him if he could hold me and say that. He did. After a few minutes, he took my hand in his and we laid our legs over top one another like a wishbone. We both stayed there looking at one another, not saying a word, sweat on our brows in the dry heat of August. I moved the cloth so it draped over both of us and we slid our heads that much closer. The tips of our noses touched and we left them there, puckering for a cunic. We clasped one another like a zipper. The cloth blocked out all the light and we lay side by side in darkness. I felt the heat of his breath on my cupid's bow. We slid off our jeans and raised our t-shirts to press our bodies closer, our nipples kissing too. Our breaths grew heavy. His thighs were bony and my clavicle dug into his, but it was the most comfortable I had been in a long time. After our bodies were drenched in sweat, we pulled off the cloth and we laughed. He stared at me for a long time. I saw new parts of his body I'd never seen before a chicken pox scar on his cheek, the width of his bottom lip. We both knew what the other was feeling. Instead of saying we liked or we loved one another, we just lay there on our backs, our brown skin shiny in the rosy light that poured in from the evening sun. We surveyed each other's body. 
him seeing the scar above my clavicle from when I fell down the stairs as a kid, and me seeing the patch of hair missing from his scalp. I knew then that I loved him. It's funny, though. Funny how an Indian love you sounds more like I'm in pain with you. Hi, hi. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's so moving. Um, just to maybe finish, I, I'm really interested in you've got some projects coming up as well. You've got um, Making Love with the Land, which explores the intersections of indigeneity, queerness, and most prominently mental health through a Nihio lens. Um, and also Love After the End, Two-Spirit, Utopias and Dystopias, a book of speculative fiction by Two-Spirit and Indigiqueer writers, which both sound amazing. Um, can you tell us more about those? What are you looking forward to about those projects? Yeah, so I have Love After the End coming out again with Arsenal Pulp Press, same one as Johnny. Um, that comes out in fall 2020, and we have um, nine brilliant writers, mostly emerging, um, Indigenous writers, most of whom identify as queer or two-spirit or trans, coming forward to telling all these stories, um, but instead focusing on the utopia, because I think we already kind of live as Indigenous and queer folks in a dystopian present, even more so now um, under COVID-19. So I'm very excited for that. I feel like I keep flip-flopping. So I do like this kind of nerdy cyborg book. And then it's like a novel about pain. And then a nerdy book. <laughs> uh, and then the forthcoming book uh, that's written solely by me uh, is, as you said, Making Love with the Land. And that comes out hopefully fall 2021 with Kanop Canada. Uh, and yeah, very much explores indigeneity, mental health, queerness um, through perhaps a more, it's a very vulnerable lens as nonfiction. Uh, and I'm led there by Johnny as the line, as he's at one of the quotes you said, if you animate your pain, you can make love to it. He notes that uh, a humility is just a humiliation you loved so much it transformed. So the book is really kind of thinking about like, how do we be ex uh, accountable um, and reciprocal with things we might think of damning, such as insomnia or body dysmorphia. So stay tuned. I'm excited. <laughs> Joshua, thank you for sharing that with us. And um, if you can stay with us until we come back together at the end. Um, but those are definitely books to look forward to. And we might be able to get you out here to talk about those books in uh, future years. Okay. Thank you. Um, remember, you can send through questions uh, and I will see if we can fit them in. Um, our final guest this morning is Ruby May Nipunui Soli. She is Kaitahu Waitaha and Kati Mamoi. She's a musician, writer and Taonga Puoro practitioner living in Pōneke Aotearoa. She's also a music therapist and has played with artists including Yo-Yo Ma, Trinity Roots and Firimakal Black. Ruby's poetry has been published in journals such as Landfall, Minarets and Starling. Her debut book, Toku Papa, will be published by Victoria University Press in 2021. And her first album, the subject of our discussion today, discusses the hidden histories of Wellington as well as the part that the environment plays within the recording and composing process. Kia ora, Ruby. Um, what's really exciting about being able to talk about your album Pōneke today is that in the original Auckland Writers Festival programme, you were going to make music for our Onayane evening event, while other guests 
read their work. <clears throat> now we get to hear some of those haunting, stunning sounds through the album, which is kind of a tour of the Wellington area. Um, and in your introduction, you talk about all the voices that live and sing within us and that you see time pulled around us like a kōrōwai. We are layered within it. I was just wondering if you can tell us how those ideas are woven into the music as part of the process. And I'm thinking of things like layering sounds from different places. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely talk to that. So I think that with visual, with the kind of visual sense or other senses, it can be quite easy to take away senses of, of history in a lot of ways. And there's a lot of erasure of especially indigenous histories um, in those ways. And I think this is especially relevant at the moment when we're looking at kind of these statues being taken down around the world and indigenous and black uprising. And within the album, I was looking more at the concept of sound and how you can go to these places and these tohu of, these tohu, these signs of these histories elements in the present and even possible futures are present there within sounds and within other things too. So within our pūrāko, for example, in our stories, we have elements that talk about different tohu and why they're there. So like at Red Rocks, um, it said that Kupe's descendants stood there and slashed their, their chests while he was leaving and that's why the rocks are that colour because that's their blood that's stained them that they did to express their grief. So we have all these signs there that are our kind of version of statues and our kind of version of our origin stories. So it was kind of wanting to expose those and to kind of weave them all together using music as that common thread, music and poetry and art as well, to kind of give people a way into seeing that and understanding those layers beneath the places they live in, um, no matter kind of what what sense kind of spoke to them? Kia ora. Yeah, so uh, they, it might not be a conscious, 100% conscious, but the, the stories will filter through the music as, and then there's the words and the, and the images as well. Yeah. Sure. So you and I first met a few years ago in, um, when you came to my Māori and Pacifica creative writing class as a student. And then after a while, um, I was getting to know you and I, and I found out that you were also completing a master's of music at the same time and studying poetry. And then since then you've published and performed all over Aotearoa and as well as this album, we'll so soon see the poetry collection. So that's really exciting to see you grow in that way. But is there a real strong intersect there for you between music and poetry? There's a huge intersect and I really appreciate when places can kind of understand that those things can be quite inseparable. I think especially in a lot of a lot of indigenous kind of arts spaces. I can't speak to other ones, but I know within Te Ao Māori, like a lot of people I know who are kind of focused on expression and, you know, it's all storytelling. Music is storytelling. I think anything that you've got an impact into the improvisation or the composition or the even the representation of that, of how it's presented, it's all elements of storytelling, which is how we have passed those histories down. Storytelling is survival. And, you know, we just need to choose that form that it comes through. And for me, idea, idea always comes first. And it's not necessarily a music idea or a writing idea or a film idea or anything like that. It's just an idea. 
and then it, you can kind of choose where you take it from there, I think. Mm-hmm. I love that um, idea storytelling is survival um, in all the different ways that it happens. And there's kind of a continuity there between <clears throat> what might be seen as pre-colonial or post-colonial or whatever you want to call it. It's all the same for Māori in terms of what way the story is told. Um, and and so Pōneke as an album, I, for me in, in my ears, it's quite mournful. There's some mournful sounds in it. And um, in an online conversation with Essa Meiranapiri, who was also part of our Nayane series, um, the original series, you say, writing into a place is a very Māori way of creating, I think, and yes, it hurts to do it and to move through it. And there's a connection here obviously already happening between what Josh was talking about, what Renee was talking about, and, and this idea of um, the pain of connecting with some of these things. But <clears throat> I was wondering if you can talk about the necessity to move through these painful places as creators and perhaps particularly as Indigenous creators, although I don't think it's limited to our indigeneity. Yeah, I think it's lovely to bring Issa into the into the room too, because I know that Issa is a huge part of the kind of takatapui writing community in New Zealand and is such an amazing support for all of us. And it was such a beautiful wānanga to have as well, because their work really does write into place and often places they haven't had the opportunity to go to and writes this narrative of kind of this dis- disconnection that a whole bunch of Indigenous youth especially have and kind of highlights that so people can really feel what it's like to be in the crux of that and it's so important to be able to read those experiences by other writers so we can in turn be able to create these works so yeah for writing into those places there's kind of a really beautiful way about writing and it resonates a bit with what Joshua said about it feels like you know healing it feels like a healing ceremony it feels like you know, a whakaora in so many ways, because for me, this was writing myself into this place. It was me realizing I'm going to be here for a long time and I'm not mana whenua here, but in a way, like I can mihi to things that are here. I can mihi to mana whenua and how I communicate. Like I'm, I'm not going to stand up and do a whaikorero. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not a male whaikorero, um, kaikorero here. So I, was like this is how I speak this is how I mihi so that's what that work became and for me it was by learning about where I was and where I am I was learning about who I was as well and learning about the routes that my people have taken through this island to get to Te Waipaunamu which is our our spiritual home really and kind of learning about what that looked like yeah mm-hmm. Kia ora, Ruby um and so I wonder if we could hear some of those sounds now and and your words. Let's do it. So I've got, um, I'm going to read four quite short pieces that will have some of the tracks in the background so you can get kind of an idea of how the, the pieces feed into each other. And then at the end, I'm going to read a piece from my book that's coming out in 2021, Toku Papa. So first up, this is set in Karaka Bay, um, it was a, a karaka plantation from Kati Māmoi, um, and those karaka trees are still there today. So this one is called Karaka Wana. Mm. Toku tūpuna, 
You brought the seeds for this place all the way across the Pacific in your hand. You, the man of weaving worlds, Ruafaro, Te Tōhoka o Takitimu Waka, now here we are in a landscape that deafened settlers with the rolling of whales. Massive bodies pressing each other as if to create worlds. I stand feeling the ihi, the wehi, the wana wana of your children bubble under my feet in a space that now is only this one world with nothing under its waters but space. And this next one is in the same place, so it's its companion piece called Karaka Tau, meaning kind of settled. And so this is kind of further back from the shore um, inside that plantation. And there's a, a Piwaka Waka fan tale that was there. We did some filming for this as a music video as well. And the same fan tale probably um, showed up for both the recording of the music and for the recording of the video. So it's the same presence, which is a really beautiful tohu. E koro. Thank you for telling me how karaka do not grow by the ocean by their own hands. Thank you for showing me the trees Alkati Mamoi Tupuna planted in this place. They still grow strong for us. I return here when you have gone. Deep in this plantation, I watch Piwaka Waka move between poison berries. Unaware that time has moved, that the waves we can hear are cars by the shore. Um, so the next two are companion pieces again called Machu and then Soames. So this, these are a tribute to Machu Soames Island, which was used as kind of a battle pa and is named after a descendant of Kupe and was also used as a, um, a quarantine island and for prisoners of war as well in the Pākehā history. So this first one is a tribute to the island as Machu. E papa, kei I slashed my breasts until the rocks were red for you. You name an island for me. Isn't this what all fathers do? Put their children out to sea, watch them grow roots into the expanse and claim our new spaces for themselves. Then leave us to bleed our red soil into the waters they use to leave us behind. And this one is a tribute to kind of the Soames part of, of that place and it's recorded in the um, the battle the gun emplacements within the island so that has a kind of a natural reverb within it I'm sorry but this land is a waiting room 
The stagnating Wairua evaporating to slow mists and trapped houses filled with chlorine. Sulfur clouds in the air. This is a rugged purgatory for what you did, for what you didn't do. See the places where the guns sit, concrete, cold, empty, and waiting for a war that never arrives. And this last one is a is a piece that's coming out as part of my proper first proper collection of of poetry, Toku Papa, which I started writing in Tina's class actually, which is um it's a really beautiful 360 um, moment. So this piece is called Six for a Single, Eight Feet for a Double, and it's based on a kaitahu motiatia. My father leaves school to dig graves. The first break is the hardest, the pressure of foot on steel, the smell of earth rising. Koia, koia, etaui, koia. The men sit with packed lunches, talking about the weather next to holes they have dug themselves. When he leaves the job, he keeps his shovel, always comes home to dig for the whanau. He keeps me playing graveside, tells me off for climbing the pile of earth, sends me to find things, the grave with the lamb, the grave with the clasped hands. He says, this is how the dead speak. A lamb for a child, clasped hands pulling each other up to heaven. But this is not the only way. The atmosphere traps us in our bodies, holds our teeth and tongues in place. My father says he has no rhythm, but when he digs, you see it in his body. The flow through the earth into the feet, contracting the calves through the spine to chiseled arms, through aging hands into the shovel and back into the whenua. Koia, koia, etaui, koia. With each beat, he piles up dirt higher and higher, making a lofty mountain for us to bow to. Kia ora, Ruby. Um, so beautiful. Um, and yeah, I just want to listen to that for longer, but. We'll continue. Um, and before we move on to bringing us back together, I guess I just wanted to ask you as um, the fresh new voice and, and talking about 360s, we've got this kind of be beautiful progression from great experience to brand new brand newness in this conversation. Um, and I was thinking about giving your, yourself permission um, to, to use your voice in the world in this way. There's such an onus on Indigenous writers to represent more than just their own story. So did you feel like you had to develop that ability to, to be a writer in the world and to speak your truth aloud? It's an intense pressure and it's one that I never realised that Pākehā writers don't always have to have that or writers that are from kind of the that group where you're not othered all the time. I just didn't never thought about it. But of course, every time you create something from an Indigenous space or from a queer space, there is going to be 
that thought from outside that this is what all of this is like because it's the only information I know. And I think within that, there's a role where we all need to kind of whakamana other writers within those spaces so that people realise that that's not the only voice. And I think that's something that takatāpui culture does so well is it manages to whakamana all these different voices. Like I have a real great group of takatāpui writers that I... I hang out with that I can check that will check me if I'm doing something that isn't right and who will like support me no matter what happens and all our voices are incredibly different we all love each other's work but all of our voices are incredibly different and I think that's that's part of what makes it amazing and we need more and more of those voices to do that totally totally absolutely and that was I guess a really huge part of the Onayane series. So a brilliant place to finish there, Ruby. Thank you so much um, for that. And we'll just bring everybody um, back together now uh, because everybody has kind of hit on some really important stuff. And I don't know, Joshua, if you're familiar with the term takatākui, but it would be, mean something like indigiqueer. Um, it's the queer community. Um, it's an um, older Māori word for um, different um, sexualities um, and, and, and kind of includes, uh, I guess it's a, an inclusive term. So um, uh, we have kind of um, some things that we've talked about, storytelling as survival, um, the sense of writing home, all three of you, and the sense of responsibility as, as um, Indigenous, as in, uh, Takatāpui, as Māori um, writers, um, to quote Joshua again, uh, in terms of uh, Johnny Appleseed, he tells his story unapologetically because he has no other choice, because there is no other story, because there is no other way to live. And I think that that counts for everybody. One story, uh, one question that came through from um, an audience member is whether, and it was to Josh, but I think this applies to everybody, whether. Um, you have a sense of responsibility, um, the sense of responsibility, whether that means pulling back from writing about Indigenous people in negative ways. So there's this question of, um, do are we, you know, uh, is this vital writing, does responsibility weigh on us too heavily or can we write us in our full um, positives and negatives, I guess, and 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 do you feel an urgency about this? I wonder if each of you might be able to talk to that. That's not a very well-formed question. I'm sorry. What do you think, Josh? Yeah. Um, I've had criticisms about similar things, about writing negatively about, specifically in my book, I don't really center in men, um, at least heterosexual cisgendered men. Primarily it's focused on two spirits, um, bisexual, indigenous folks, and then primarily just indigenous women. Um, <laughs> part and parcel because what I have been taught is that we always place our most vulnerable in the center, kind of as we would with like a wolf pack. Uh, and for too long, I've just, rightfully so, a lot of indigenous men have been traumatized uh, and abused in all forms. Um, but for so long, I've seen them placed in the center. And while we have them in the center and we all 
collectively rally around them. We also have large scale things such as missing and murdered indigenous women, girls and two spirited people. So what I wanted to do was, yeah, write about the ways in which indigenous masculinities harm indigenous women and queer or two spirit or trans indigenous people and to also hold them accountable too. Um, a good a friend of mine, Kai Chang Tom, uh, Canadian, Chinese Canadian writer here, trans writer as well, says that we should think of criticism as a gifting rather than as a calling. And I really think for me, it's if I want to be accountable to communities, to myself, to my kin, I also have to be able to perhaps as uh, Indigenous writer Tracy Lindbergh says, tell the, the ugly stories too, um, or to not shy away from the, the negative as perhaps another Cree writer, Billy Ray Belcourt might say, to revel in the negative affects as well um, in order to kind of, yeah. So if I had to combine those three writers, Tracy Lindbergh, Billy Ray Belcourt and uh, Kai Cheng Tom is to not shy away from the bad, but also to not glamorize it for the sake of selling to again, to like, like trauma or poverty porn, um, but to use criticism um, as I may say, perhaps or the negative as a means of creating a stronger community and healing together. Kia Josh, and um, I've also got a message that you've made new fans here, so I'll pass that on afterwards. <laughs> um, Renee, you also don't shy away in this a really important story of home and what was taken from, um, what is taken from people um, in, when they're put in homes that aren't their own. Um, yeah, mm. did you, do you feel a sense of responsibility or do you ever want to get away from I do. that? I do, I do feel a sense of responsibility to tell their stories because, well, very few, very few of the stories have been told except, say, some of them have been managed to say to an inquiry to, you know, these four strangers sitting up the front, uh, but most they tell you over a cup of tea or we meet somewhere and... Yes, I, I feel I have a responsibility, but I also feel I have a responsibility to show success as well, that um, I like the idea of um, Ruby being haunted by her past and looking for her parents and those sorts of things, but also being smart and in your face and... Um, vigorous and, and liking pies and all that sort of thing. I like um, to include Takatapui all the time. Uh, I mean, all my novels have had that in, because it's such a, and it's such a lovely term. I love it because it's so inclusive. It doesn't divide us into sex segments or anything like that. We are all under this one beautiful umbrella and um, takatapui, it, it's just such a beautiful, beautiful thing. I love it. I love the expression. I use it as often as I can because it is so inclusive. So I write I write about that and I write about the world of a village or world of a town and that includes takatapui. <laughs> um, surprise, surprise. I mean, we're all around. We walk up the street. We're old, we're young, um, and uh, we're finding out, and we know, and the one, and some of us know, and all that. It's um, it's great uh, adventure for me to write about that, and um, 
it hasn't always been received all that well. Um, mm. I remember a, a reviewer saying, um, well, I don't know what sort of women Rene mixes with, but I can tell her we don't have those sort of women here. And I thought, well, I've got news for you, darling. <laughs> they're all around. It's just that they're never, they're never seen. And if we read, if it's true that we read to find ourselves, then a lot of us have never been able to find ourselves in a lot of books. But I hope at least Takatapui anyway will find themselves in mine. Brilliant. I don't know why. It just makes me so happy listening to what you have to say, Renee. <laughs> I think I do know why. Um, Ruby, I've already asked you about responsibility. So I guess to, to finish off, I, I guess, yes, we've got this weight, but how, how do you, you know, what keeps you going? How do you take care of yourself in this, this process? What are, what are the joys? Oh gosh, I'm the worst person to ask that question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I heard... Um, Morgan briefly talk about this last year and I said to her um, I said what do you do when you get tired and she said she said we can't afford to be tired no <laughs> we can't afford to be tired she's like we have the most um, Māori women are the most represented in prison in the entire world like you know our children are being taken our you know we have people being ripped from their whenua like all of these things are happening we can't afford to be tired and that was not the ex response I was respect I was expecting. I was expecting her to be like, you know, you should, you know, play kawa with yourself and do all these things. But she was like, no, you can't afford to be tired. And I think there's a lot within that. I think there's something else I do now is I think about why people are wanting something, why people are wanting to consume something. And I look at those reasons very carefully now. And I didn't used to. And I definitely look at when someone asks for work or when somebody asks for ask you questions about your 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 art form what you're making I kind of look very carefully and see if they're if they're there for the right reasons and I think when you create work as well there's this really interesting thing where you're almost creating a code for certain people who read your work so when I'm writing I'm writing something that's definitely consumable on the surface for everybody consumable is a gross word there but that's what the majority of people will be doing but then there's this behind it there's that hohonu that layer underneath those deeper layers that have pieces for takatapui and they have these stories so giving your writing and your music like a whakapapa that goes deeper than that surface that gives them gives them histories and acknowledges all the things that have made that writing come into being by being woven underneath so I think that's that's part of how how I do it is I have that happening underneath to hold it up and know that I'm creating, you're kind of creating resources in a way for those people to read. I just spent a year only reading books by Māori authors, um, which was incredible. And I read books by both Utena and both you, Renee, during that year. And then the first book I read when I came out was a book, <laughs> was a book by Joshua. So <laughs> like a slow transition out, right? I mean, um, but yeah, and that was, I completely agree with what Renee said. You know, we don't see ourselves in books and I'm usually a very fast reader. I can read things really quickly because I'm reading that surface because there isn't that whakapapa to those words for me because that's not mine. But it took me forever to read these books because I would be so emotional or be really thinking about something and it felt like learning to read all over again. And it made me realise a lot about 
my purpose as a writer and what that looks like to be writing those manuals and those codes and those, you know, it's a man writing, you're writing manuals for being. And like, you know, if you're Takatapu or Indigenous, that people can choose to choose to take part in or not. And that's totally fine. You're just giving them a book and saying, if you want to learn from what I've learned and what my ancestors have learned, here you go. I, I could talk with you three forever. Um, and I hope we get that opportunity again one day. Um, I think writing manuals for being is a nice place to finish. So thank you all for your wisdom. And it's just been a real joy. Um, and so, kanui tēnā, ngā mihi mai kia koutou katoa. Massive thanks to our writers, our audience, and the Auckland Writers Festival team and Auckland Live. The festival has a generous group of sponsors and partners and would like to acknowledge their crucial support. These are listed on the festival's website. This, is, this episode can be viewed again at your leisure there as well. Thank you for being here with us today, Renee, Joshua and Ruby. So you can tune in again next week when Paula Morris will be talking with Canadian writer, artist and publisher Leanne Shapton about guest book, Ghost Stories. Kolokesa Umahina Tuai, co-editor of Crafting Aotearoa, a cultural history of making a New Zealand in the wider Moana Oceania. And Neil Gaiman with this Neil Gaiman with the special new illustrated edition of his best-selling novel, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Nō reira e ngā hoe e whā, ka nui te mihi, kia koutou katoa. <laughs>